You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, I'm Steve Coleman. I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and we're in our series on Genesis. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. You know, the sibling relationship is complicated. Uh, My wife is always trying to figure out ways to get our children to submit to her their Christmas lists in a timely manner. She hates last-minute Christmas shopping. So what she generally does in her email, in kind of a tongue-in-cheek fashion, but she says, the first one that gets their email list, their, their Christmas list to me, will be my favorite. And they come in very quickly. You know, a mother of ten children was asked once, what child do you love the most? She paused and said, the one who needs me most at that moment. Irma Bombeck, uh, normally a humorist, wrote, a child needs your love more when he deserves it the least. You know, one thing I think you're going to notice as we look through Genesis chapter 4 is that in the story of Cain and Abel, a lot of space is devoted to Cain. In fact, you're sort of tempted to, to call this chapter the story of Cain. Abel does not get much airtime. The narrative is pretty terse, just the basic facts. What occupies nine out of the 16 verses of the story are two conversations that God has with Cain. Of, of the four people listed as being on earth at the time, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, you barely get a mention of the other three. And Cain was certainly one who deserved love the least, but God focuses a good bit of attention on him. So let's take a look at the account and and see why. The details of the narrative. In verse 1, Eve And Adam give birth to Cain. And Eve says, calls him Cain, because I have acquired a man from the Lord. Uh, It's quite a strong statement. And it makes me think that she's sort of tapping into, thinking in terms of the promise that God had made her and Adam back in Genesis 3.15, that a seed will come from her who will crush the serpent's head, uh, even though the serpent will crush this man's heel. And um, we've talked about five themes to look at here in the book of Genesis, and uh, and this one certainly qualifies as as fitting under the the one theme that we have here of the seed. Uh, There was a promised seed, the one that was going to solve this sin problem created in chapter 3 in the garden. And Eve, it seems, really thought, Cain, I've got the man from the Lord. I've got this seed. Here we go. And of course, Cain doesn't turn out to be the seed. He doesn't turn out to be a person that's in the line of the coming Messiah. Uh, Just to underscore the fact that Cain is the guy that's being focused on. It says a little later there, 
Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, period. Now, the word Abel means vapor or breath. So I don't know uh, what was happening there. Perhaps she had seen Cain grow up a year or two or five or ten before she had Abel and said, you know, I'm not sure the seed's coming this generation because this guy Cain isn't working out so well. Maybe she was discouraged on that front. We're not told. But in any event, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And then we're told immediately that uh, Cain grew up to be a farmer, a guy that worked the soil, and that Abel grew up to be someone who tended livestock, kept livestock, uh, a flock actually. And um, so he was a shepherd. Uh, and, and, and the next piece of narrative uh, again comes pretty quickly and says that when they brought their offering to the Lord, that Cain brought the produce from his land and that Abel brought some of the fat portions from the firstborn of the flock. And we have the declarative statement that God, um, in verse 4, that God accepted Abel's offering, but did not accept Cain's offering. Cain was rejected. His offering didn't make the cut. We're not told why at that point. We're not told uh, sort of what, what, the, what the plan was for these offerings. They're just mentioned. But when we get to verse 5 and we, we, uh, we start in toward one of these conversations that God has with Cain, we read, verse 5, But on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor, meaning God. So Cain was very angry. And we learned in the earlier message, thanks to Heather, that a temper tantrum is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. (laughs) This is the wrong kind of fruit. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. From God's conversation, we knew that Cain knew the right thing to do with the sacrifice. We're not given details, but we're told here that Cain knew. God says, if you had done the right thing, it would have been accepted. But if if you do the wrong thing, what else is going to happen? It's not going to be accepted. Well, why didn't Cain bring the right offering? Like a lot of these Old Testament narratives, you don't get enough information, or at least as much as you want. And you have to take a look at the text and realize it's trying to make a point. But if we were to think and say, why did Cain not bring the right offering? Well, he was a farmer and probably a great one. So perhaps he wanted to bring the thing he was good at. Maybe the thing that represented his greatest accomplishment or something he was most proud of. Or maybe he just brought what he had available and ready instead of what God required. You know, it's... 
We're not told, again, what God's requirement was. Abel's offering was accepted. And it's interesting that offering the fat from the firstborn animals really parallels what we learn later in the book, in the Pentateuch, later in the Torah, and on even beyond that with the sacrifice system as it was set up for Israel, that this is very consistent with that kind of sacrifice. Well, Cain was steamed. And again, we're not told why. Why was Cain so angry? He ended up killing Abel, but was it Abel's fault? No. But maybe Cain could have been jealous of Abel. Was he mad at God for his rules? Maybe. Um, It makes sense that he might be. He took it out on the wrong person. You know, uh, I'm glad we have the children in here because now it's time that we can talk about cleaning our rooms. But I was talking to Don Cruz last week, and, and he was talking about a discussion he had with the, with the children, uh, sort of on this very point. And he asked them, okay, your mother wants you to clean your room and before you can go over to your friend's house and play. So you, you go up to your room and you say, I have a shortcut. And you take all your stuff and you cram it in the closet and under the bed. And the room looks pristine. And he asked them, will she be angry when she finds out the truth? And the truthful answer is yes. Mothers will not be happy with that. Now, if your mother goes on and says, you cannot go to your friend's house because you didn't do it properly, Will you be angry at her? He said, yes, we'd be angry. That's our human nature. When uh, we don't get what we're looking forward to, what we want, when we get rejected, it doesn't matter if we fail to follow rules or whether something happened that was out of our control. We tend to get angry. Cain found someone other than himself to blame. You know, the book of Ephesians has an interesting way when it talks about anger. It's talking about all the things Heather was talking about this morning, about the the wrong kinds of things, the wrong behaviors that we should not be doing, and we should be doing things that that would lead to uh, spiritual fruit. But Ephesians, it says, right in the middle of that, it says, in your anger... Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down when you are angry. In other words, don't wait to make things right. So Ephesians is acknowledging, Paul here is acknowledging that anger is going to be there from time to time. And he says, but don't sin about it. So anger itself is not sin. But there's something that anger does to us or for us, or we do with that anger, that can lead to sin. And that's what Paul's warning about. I think part of it is in the tip that he gives. Don't let the sun go down when you're angry. In other words, don't hang on to it. You know, get it it resolved. Get it done. Get it out of your system. Don't let it hang in there to fester. 
We can conclude that, a, that Cain should have owned his problem and made this thing right with God. So if your room's not clean in your mother's eyes because you stuffed all the stuff in the closet or stuffed it under the bed, whose fault? It's yours. So but we see God here coming to Cain and saying, you're angry. This is not good. Warning him. Do you see God is coming here to assist Cain? He comes later on with his second conversation to tell Cain the things that are going to happen to him. But here he's urging him to change his direction, to pull Cain back from the, from the brink. We said last week, when, after Adam and Eve sinned, God went out and provided skins for garments for them. Uh, it was a pure act of mercy. They, they felt naked, were ashamed. They had co- tried to cover themselves best they could with whatever they could stitch together of fig leaves, but that wasn't going to be appropriate or last. And God came up with something that not only showed His grace, not only showed us this sort of principle that the innocent is going to need to die for the guilty, but it also was an act of mercy by giving them garments that were going to be durable, that would cover the shame they felt. Well, here's God coming to assist Cain, challenging Cain's anger, urging him to do the right thing, and then warning him about the peril he's in. Sin's crouching at the door, and it wants to master you. Don't let it master you. It's as if God was saying, get hold of yourself, son. Don't let this happen. But you know the story, maybe better than I. Cain kills Abel anyway. So we have God coming to Cain a second time. Where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Boy, pretty nasty deflection. God goes on to say toward the end of that section, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Wow, for a farmer, that's not good news. You're going to plant and the ground's going to say, meh. Now, right fertilizer, you got it. You got the stuff to keep the bugs away. Boy, you put that that uh, peat moss in there and other things. You work the soil just right, but ah, no, I'm not going to produce really much of anything for you. He, God took away Cain's profession, what he was good at, probably what he loved, and said, no, it's gone. And furthermore, you're going to be a wanderer. Uh, I've stayed with... Uh, I've worked for farmers, and I've stayed, stayed with a farmer once. He was actually a dairy farmer. And uh, uh, it was over, overnight, and I, just in talking to him, I found out the man had not been off the farm to miss a milking in 40-some years. Now, milking happens twice a day. That's being rooted to the land. Never went on a vacation with his wife, milking cows. That's what he did. So here's a farmer used to the land, taking great pride in that. And God says, it's not going to yield for you, and you're going to end up being a wanderer. Bad news for Cain 
all the way. Why did God do this? Well, I'm convinced this is, again, an act of mercy on the part of God to do this. You might say that's pretty rough mercy. Mercy. But what was God's intent? God's intent was to get Cain to repent, to turn around, to come back to him. God hasn't given up on Cain. We, we get that underscored as Cain pleads for relief. He says, my punishment's more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain says, the land, you're taking it away from me. I'm having to be out of the Lord's presence. I'm going to be a wanderer, and someone will kill me. Cain had that image in his mind of the Hatfields and McCoys, but without the McCoys. He was a Hatfield who had killed a child of Adam and Eve. Everybody he would ever meet for the next hundreds of years were going to be close relatives who were probably pretty upset that Cain killed Abel. He knew he was marked. And so God says, not so. I'm going to put a mark on you. You are going to be protected you are going to live. Well, why? Why worry about Cain in that way? Because God wanted Cain to live, to continue to think, to bring Cain around to repentance. And you see a little glimmer of it. God said, the land's not going to produce for you and you're going to be a wanderer. And Cain says, this is terrible. The land's not going to produce. I'm going to be a wanderer and I'm going to be out of the Lord's presence and someone will kill me. And God says, well, that's off the table. But here's Cain understanding, realizing there's an impact for him for being out of the Lord's presence. Sign of hope. Sign of hope that there's something here that may bring Cain back around. No record of it. There's no indication at all of it. Matter of fact, just to read the account onward, and we don't hear about Cain much from then, but his whole line of people are part of the line of people that uh, end up in, um, in another thousand years or so as being part of the world that was wiped out by Noah's flood. But you know, it shouldn't surprise us that God's mercy is like that. It's an important point to realize that his mercy is like that. But he, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God doesn't want to see anybody keep going down that road. God doesn't want to see anybody that doesn't turn around and come back to him. And Cain is banished. One more thing I wanted to talk about, and that is this crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to master you. 
You know, it, it just has a predatory nature, sound to it, crouching at the door, a dominating influence that, come, that was coming on Cain's life from his own anger and bitterness that grew up from that, a dominating influence that wants to come on our lives from our own desires and imaginings, maybe from Satan or maybe from the world, which is which is running down a track if we're not on that same track. But there is a choice. There's always a choice. Domination doesn't mean hopeless. And this is what God was emphasizing to Cain. There is a choice. James says it like this. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. God was trying to intervene with Cain before this sin became full grown and resulted in what it did result in, the murder of Abel. We know the steps that Cain missed that God still urges us about are in the New Testament. Uh, It says there, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that we have this armor, this spiritual armor, to uh, protect us from the wiles of the devil. And it says, and having done all, to stand. God wants us to take a stand. God wants us to be resistant. When it comes to the world, the way Paul talks about it is this, don't be pressed into the mold of the world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Cain wasn't interested in renewing his mind. He went along the way that this world knows all too often of lashing out, murder, a self-focused. And then when it comes to just our own desires, Paul also writes, we should count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. The reason we can do that is The power of sin is broken because Jesus paid that penalty. What we've been given is His righteousness. What God has done is create a new heart within us. He's made us a new creation. So we now have a choice. I, I, I love those pictures of the salmon run that happens in the fall, of those those salmon, and they're they're swimming up these strong flowing streams and, and even up these small waterfalls. You see the fish and they go up in the air and, and, and you just wonder how any of them make it. But they're determined and they do. Uh, I think about the contrast where we're called, where in Ephesians it says we're dead in our trespasses and sin and we're following along the course of this world. Uh, before Christ, we're, we're like fish that have no life, dead fish. And so whichever way the current's going, that's where we're going. No real choice. But God says, given us His Spirit, a new creation, we now have a choice. And instead of being pressed into that mold, we can be transformed. And we can, like those fish do, swim against the current no matter how strong it is. But again, it's a choice. A fish doesn't have to swim up against the current. Fish can be alive 
and swim sideways or swim down with the current. The key is there's choice for us. And we're told to yield ourselves as instruments for God, not to not yield ourselves to wickedness or our own desires. So, uh, Cain missed seeing his situation with reality, with real glasses. He was really caught up, apparently, in his own anger, his own concerns and desires. He did not repent, which is simply a matter of turning, facing the other direction. So when you go, you're going a different direction. And he didn't do the right thing as a result of that. Paul tells us we should be, as, the, as, as a normal practice, be putting off behaviors that are not toward God but toward ourselves and putting on uh, these behaviors that lead to the fruit of the Spirit. He uses that metaphor of taking off a piece of clothing and putting on another. You know, when Kevlar was invented, it's made a huge impact on not only the armed forces, but local uh, organizations that enforce laws. So now, you know, it's just standard to see uh, under a policeman's shirt that thin layer of Kevlar. Uh, But what that Kevlar does is stop bullets and other dangerous things. That's what Paul's instructions in Ephesians 4 aimed at. They're aimed at us putting off these behaviors uh, that are oriented toward ourselves, turning to God, putting on His righteousness like Kevlar, and now we can live life the way it's meant to be lived. We can have eternal life here and now. We can experience that And we have the opportunity to be victorious over all those things that threaten to drag us away from God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you provided for us. Thank you for your love that you never give up on us. And uh, we ask that you would help us this week to um, be sensitive to your spirit, repent of what we need to repent of, and uh, do the things that you want us to do. We love you in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.